This week on Living the Call, join us for part one of Deacon Charlie's conversation with Carl Keating. Carl is the OG apologist and a pioneer of Catholic media. He is a full-time author with 20 books published to date, including his most recent titled 1054 and All That, A Lighthearted History of the Catholic Church. In this episode, Carl discusses his new book, particularly how fun it was to write this brief and humorous history of the church. They also cover topics of hiking, apologetics, and technology, and explore the question of why indifferentism to God has spread in our culture today. When that happens, when let's say you're just looking at your screen all day long, you block yourself out from the wider world. You, you may not be conscious of that. Some people may do it deliberately, but I think most people are not conscious of it. You don't have an appreciation then of what's around you, who's around you, what's going on, what does it mean? You know, what does that imply? So if you can block out the world around you that you can see and touch and feel and taste and hear, it's even easier to block out God. This is Living the Call. Carl Keating, welcome to the show. Thank you, Charlie. It's great to be with you. Thank you. It's been ages since you and I have been in one's presence physically. Absolutely. So, so digitally is maybe next best. It's better than nothing. I was going to say that the uh, the powers of darkness have been conspiring for the last half hour to keep us apart, though, on this uh, this technology. We didn't, neither one of us, I think, knew or knows the saint dedicated to fixing computer problems. We need to figure that out. Well, you know, I researched, um, I think St. Isidore of Seville is the patron of the internet. Yeah, and he was a farmer, so go figure. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> yes, yes, he was a farmer. Yeah. So, so who knows? That makes, that makes little to no sense. Um, but, but that's often the way patronages seem to work out with saints. Mm. I mean, uh, Therese of Lisieux, she's the patron saint of priests. Why? You know, it's not, it's not completely obvious. Okay, right. you'd, ex, you'd expect first off to be a priest, right? To be a priest, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Life. Wow. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I always wonder about that. And some of these things happen, I think, in, you know, after the fact, certainly for St. Isidore, it must have somebody made the decision, oh yeah, let's make him the patron of the internet, you know, however many centuries after the fact. Um, Carl, it, it it's it's a particular privilege for me to have you on the show for a number of reasons. Number one, I, I think scarcely are it would would there be somebody on in the audience of this show who hasn't come across your name or your work in some way, shape, or form. Uh, but for those who may not be aware, you're one of what I would call uh, sort of you know using the parlance of today the OG apologist, right? Uh, or one of the OGs, certainly in the American, uh, you know, context, and the founder of Catholic Answers, really what I would think is kind of an art architect in a way, or pioneer in Catholic media. Um, you're an ex-lawyer, you're a hiker, you're a mandolin player, an adventurer, among so many different things. But people, myself included, have come into contact with you either through one of the many books, was it 20, 19, 20 books you've written? Right, 20 by now. 20 by now, uh, 20 books, or the, the, the sort of far-reaching effect that the Apostle of Catholic Answers has had for a very long time in so many different ways and permutations. So you are probably the first seminal guest that I've had uh, on the show. So for that, I'm very, I'm very privileged and appreciative of, of you taking some time. 
Well, it's a delight to be with you, Charlie. And, you know, uh, I appreciate your kind comments, exaggerated as they are, but, <laughs> but, uh, but I appreciate them. I was reading your post on, um, on Facebook recently. And by the way, your posts are, are legend on Facebook. I mean, these things are, you know, most people put like a picture updating us on, you know, their grandkid lost a tooth. And you're, you write, a, you know, a tome about all kinds of things, you know, birds and hiking trails and, you know, the church. And so every one of these things is a learning opportunity. But the latest one that I came across was about um, this hike that you recently took and, and, you know, how, how, how trying it was. I think you, you talked about hiking, what was it, three and a half days and you did hundreds of miles in this, in this uh, Grand Canyon hike? I wish I could do hundreds of miles. I can't do that. No, it was only 24 and a half miles, but it seemed like hundreds because the uh, the trail I descended, which I'd been on 15 years ago, was much in disrepair. Mm. So it was tough to go down 4,000 feet. And then the trail I went horizontally along above the river. Uh, on that day, it rained terribly and my rain new rain gear failed me. So it was quite unpleasant. And then on the way up, uh, where I had to gain 3,300 feet the last day, there was ice and snow on the trail. And that made it tough. But by that time, I was so exhausted that uh, exiting uh, on a trail that I've been on many times took much longer than I expected because I simply had no calories left within me, even yeah. though I'd been eating properly. Mm -hmm. but I, I was just so worn out. Is it better to hike solo or with people? I almost always hike solo. Uh, one reason is that you know, more nowadays than when I was younger, there are times I simply need to quit a hike and, and go back to the trailhead. You know, I can see, oh, for example, last year I was on a hike in the high Sierra and it's a five day route. And I got onto it. I was going more slowly than I thought that I would. And I realized I don't have enough food mm. if the hike gets extended by bad weather by another day or two. Uh, I just wasn't making the progress I had wanted. So I turned around. And actually, that, that one worked out pretty well. It ended up with another Facebook post. What That post showed that at one point coming back to the trailhead, I looked up from my feet because normally you're just watching your feet so you don't trip. And ahead of me, about 50 feet, was a bear on the trail. Wow. And I think it was a, an older juvenile male. And I told him, move along, move along. And he did. He started moving along the trail. And for the next half mile, I stayed 50 feet behind him as he went along the trail. And at some point we were on switchbacks mm -hmm. and we'd be at different Points. corners of it. Mm -hmm. And um, he'd get off the trail and I'd be on the switchback. And at some point I'd be below him and he'd be in a rock looking down on me. But other times it'd be the reverse. I'd be above him looking down. And eventually he went his own way. But I had a marvelous time uh, with that four-legged creature on the, on the trail. So there was a compensation for turning around. Mm. Yeah. It seems to me that, you know, hiking, we touched on this a little bit in our previous call that hiking, it can be a metaphor for a lot of the spiritual life. You know, you got, you got peaks and valleys, you've got, uh, you know, unforeseen difficulties. You've got to think about how to, um, you know, think about uh, in a practical way, what you might need for this journey, but you also can't aggressively store or hoard things because it weighs you down. There's so many different things I think about. I'm wondering how you got into it and if you've kind of picked up on any of this sort of, uh, you know, metaphorness of hiking. Sometimes during the hike, I would say, yes, I, I uh, had written some time back about 
an incident where in the Sierra, I came across a meadow and I paused to look at the meadow. Mm. It was it was a lovely one, uh, not particularly singular. It wasn't the most beautiful meadow I'd ever seen. No, but it was lovely. But as I stopped there, uh, it was as though I were standing in the shallows of a big lake. And suddenly, out of nowhere, came a, a large wave that washed over me mm. without without danger, but just sort of cleansed me. And I felt the same kind of thing just standing by the side of this meadow. I had a, a, a spiritual um, manifestation that I never had before while hiking. Mm. And uh, it was what, what came to me was a sense of gratitude for being able to be there. And more than that, simply being able to be, to exist mm. at all. Uh, God owes us nothing. He doesn't even know our existence. Yeah, you know, he's he's in no way obligated to us, uh, and and we ought to always, at least at times, get to thinking. Just to be is a gift, whatever whatever status we're in. But just to be, yeah, that's enough. You know, yeah. So here I was in this lovely meadow, no one for miles, perhaps around me, and this feeling just came over me. I, I never had it before. I never had it since. Uh, so sometimes when I hike, I get that I've had that intense religious or spiritual manifestation. Mm. Normally not. Normally it's it's uh, in, I would say the level of appreciation. I want to distinguish that from gratitude in a way. Appreciation being a little more fluffy, yeah, a, a lesser thing. Mm -hmm. But appreciation for, for being able to be out, and at my age, uh, still being able to be out. I came to backpacking late in life, uh, and yet I've, I've gotten much enjoyment out of it. And uh, this year, I've filled my summer schedule with uh, a large hike almost every other week. Uh, and I want to do that because at some point fairly soon, I'm not going to be able to maneuver. Yeah. I'm not going to be able to. I'll, I'll get up one day and say, hey, that was it. I, I can walk around the house. I can no longer walk outdoors, you know, in that sense. Because as you as you get older, suddenly things can change, and you're at least you're more conscious of that. And I think that's true not only physically, but uh, mentally and spiritually. You get more of a of a slap in the face periodically that this is all very ephemeral, mm. and things could change instantly. In one's moral life, in one's spiritual life, in one's mortal life. Sure. Yeah. And uh, so I'm, I'm at that point, you know, boy, boy, I figure I'm retired now, but I, I don't have another 30 or 40 good years in me yet. You know, so whatever it is, if it's three or four months, if it's three or four, it can't be three or four decades, but whatever it's going to be. Uh, one thing that age gives you is, is at least a chance to be more appreciative of what you still have, what you can still make use of. Yeah. Well, it could be three or four minutes for both, both of us and even that's, somebody far younger. And that's, that's right. That's the reality. A lot of what you say reminds me also when my father was a few weeks before he passed away, my dad died of, uh, of uh, lung cancer back in 2015. And he, he had his sort of convalescence or his period of, of, of illness with us. He did my mom and he, and he moved from Florida to Cal California, kind of counterintuitively, but it was a, 
it was a stroke of the Holy Spirit that that actually worked out the way that it did. But a few weeks before he began to enter that 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 moment to pass, a lot of strange things started happening, and it was all kicked off by an experience that reminded me a lot of how you described that meadow experience. He he talked about he, he kind of called us in to you know his room where, where he was at in our home. And he, he, he tried to describe, you could tell he was searching for words to try to explain the, what he had experienced. But it was a lot of this washing over this sense of deep gratitude, deep um, love that he could not put a finger on or put words to. But from that moment on, the, the things that were more pedestrian that, that, that he would do in his illness, you know, watch TV or read a book or whatever, he didn't want to do any of it. He, he didn't want to do anything that wasn't trying to be back in the presence of what he had come across, right? And mm-hmm. on some level, I wonder, because I have had n- no such sort of mystical brushes. My brother, that's another story. He has them all the time, um, but I've had none of them. But what I imagine is that maybe the Holy Spirit is always doing this. And it's a question of our sort of, I don't know, receptivity perhaps or, or, or something, right? Where those things align and he's like, yeah, here I am, right? I don't know. That's how I think about it because it was just so moving, so special. So um, it was like, it's just a moment of inflection for him. And, and you know, a few weeks after that, he actually passed. But, but those last weeks were kicked off by that kind of like, you know, moment of, of, of sort of this awareness and gratitude that, that he experienced. And he did this in, you know, in our guest house. So it was nothing like a beautiful meadow on the base of a mountain or something. But it, but it reminded me as you were, as you were talking about it. You know, I think, I think you're onto something when you, you talk about perhaps the Holy Spirit is always giving us an opportunity to feel and sense and appreciate this gratitude. But there's something in us at any one moment, and maybe for most of our lives, uh, except for a few moments, uh, that sort of clouds it over. It's like, you know, St. Paul and through a glass darkly. Maybe that our standard condition is looking through a glass darkly in terms of the Holy Spirit's uh, motions. But something happens, uh, not so much from anything we do, uh, maybe from from things external to us, whether it's the meadow Mm -hmm. or being in your sickbed with your family around or what have you. And, And as though a door opens or a window opens, and for a short time, maybe just moments, uh, this invitation to gratitude comes to you and and you respond, you know. So maybe that's the kind of thing your father had, the kind of thing that I experienced in the meadow. He, he um, in, in like the days leading up to his passing, he, the, the, it sort of accelerated because he would explain to us things that he was beginning to feel, see, et cetera you know, kind of the way I always described it was, because he was a very lucid guy, very sharp guy, business guy his whole life. I mean, there was no mental issues or anything along the lines. He died at, uh, I think he was 76 or 77. But um, but he would describe things that I could not see that, you know, and that were present, like among us, right? So I always kind of, and it didn't last because he passed, but um, but I always thought about those things as almost beginning to see with your spiritual eyes, right? Um, and, but, but what has always presumably been present. It was a yeah. very special time. It taught me a, a ton, right? It, it was like sort of his final lesson 
his final act as, as my dad. But, um, but those kind of brushes are just super powerful and, and, you know, can be life changing. Right. Right. Agreed. Now, are you a, Carl, are you a thinker when you hike or are you a kind of a meditator? In other words, are you thinking about the next book? Are you, are, are you processing things as you're doing these hikes or is it more experience? Usually I'm thinking about the next campsite and how I'm going to get over the next hill mm. and what I'm going to have as a snack when I find a nice rock to sit on. I, when I go hiking, I try not to think of my quotidian things, my regular daily duties. I try to, to clear the mind. And uh, I think that's a prudent thing to do. Uh, I try not to, you know, sometimes, especially nowadays, people will bring into the wilderness things that they should have left at home. Yeah. I remember coming down from a mountain once, and in the distance, I could hear some music playing. And it got closer and closer over 15 minutes or so. And then two young women came into view carrying what we still could call a boombox. Uh, now, this wasn't the true wilderness, but it was a mountain setting. Right. Uh, and they were just unable, I guess, to leave anything, to leave noise aside. You know, I'm, I'm very much for silence. Yeah. And uh, but I realize a lot of people nowadays simply don't know what to do when there's silence. They're scared of it. So when I go hiking, I have no trouble leaving behind things that are on my desk at home that I'll have to attend to once I get back. So I don't plan my next book. I don't plan my next article. Uh, I'm really just thinking about the hike, what I'm seeing and what I often end up doing, because uh you know, the older you get on the whole, the harder it is to keep moving. Right. I uh, I do a lot of counting. Said, how okay, another hundred paces. Where does that get me? Another hundred paces. Sure. Am I am I gonna reach that hilltop or is it a false summit? It's always a false summit for some reason. And and uh so I do a lot of that, but I keep my mind otherwise pretty vacant for much of the time. I think that's, yeah, I think that's super good. I mean, the, the, the thing that comes to mind for me is, is uh, you know, that's this sense of presence, right? This sense of orientation to the moment, which is part of what we've lost, uh, if, if among many things, silence, uh, of course, being one of them. But this idea of always being drawn to the moment, what am I doing right now? And in this moment of, you know, hiking, backpacking, mm-hmm. It is very much about, you know, do I have a hundred more steps? Do I have enough water? It's very present of what's going on. So it's hard to be, you know, out forward a month or back in the past. You have to be very oriented to the moment. I was thinking about this the other day. I don't know if you have thoughts on this, but somebody was asking me about the Lord's Prayer and it had never hit me. And this just shows my ignorance. But, you know, when, when we're praying the Lord's Prayer is give us this day our daily bread and I was thinking about, well, why wouldn't, why wasn't it give us this day our bread or give us our daily bread? You could have, you know, but it was, it's very intentional. It works in, in Spanish. It's the same thing. Give us this day, our daily bread, right? This sort of orientation to what is it we need right now? And, you know, kind of honing us in from don't go too far down this way and don't go too far down this way. Really be focused on what's in front of you because maybe that's where God is most active, right? In the present moment, the only real time that, right. that exists. So, you know, that idea of, can I go 10 more steps? What am I going to eat? 
it's very oriented to now as opposed to, oh, a month from now, I may have this great article on whatever. I I think that's a perceptive um, point on the Lord's Prayer. Our Lord didn't teach us to pray, uh, give us today a guarantee that we'll have what we need for the next month. Mm. (laughs) He doesn't say that. Just just the minimal we need for just this time, period. And then you've got to go back the next day, pray it again, in theory, to make it work for tomorrow and then following day. You know, so this is one of those uh, purposefully repetitious prayers. Oh. It's one it's you, in a way, you never say once and set aside. You keep coming back to it because every day you need your daily bread. And here you are asking for just what I need for today. Period. You know, you're not you're not asking for in that prayer for something down the road, but right. just to get you through today. Yeah. Since since you're a kind of a late bloomer in the backpacking and hiking game, has it affected or impacted what you would have defined as your spirituality? I don't really think so. Uh, it might have heightened. Well, I'll, I'll say this. I haven't even thought of it in these terms, but I think this might be correct. It's given me, you know, when when you're hiking a long distance, let's say you've got 10 or 15 miles to cover over rough terrain on some day. For example, I was in Grand Canyon last week. And uh, on the levelish part of my hike, that actually goes in and outside canyons. If you were to draw a line from camps, site for day one, campsite to day two, that might have been four miles, but it was 10 miles going in and out of side canyons. And that can be very frustrating because you can see a few hundred feet away the other side of the canyon, but you've got to go half a mile around to get there. Okay. And then you do that all day long. So there's, there's a chance for frustration, but there's also a chance, and I think I've gotten to this point, where you just accept that it's going to be maybe rough or or dirty or rainy or whatever, but also in a certain sense boring because mm. I'm, I'm I'm replicating the same kind of routine at each side canyon I come to, uh, and you have in mind your goal for the day, which you almost can see, but it's going to take you ten hours to get there. Uh, so I think what happens, it, it, hiking has taught me to not worry about the destination so much. Just keep moving on mm. to the extent you can. And watch your steps, because in those situations, you can mess everything up if mm. you take a misstep. Mm. Uh, and there's, I think there's a, a parallel then to maybe my approach to things spiritual where little by little is is maybe the the proper phrase. Just keep moving. Just keep going ahead. Have in mind, yes, a long-term goal. But don't fret about it. Don't worry about how long it may take you to get there. Just keep making a little progress. And and eventually you'll get there. (laughs) Well, this may not be how you'd thought about it or how you would position this, but I see a little of that little by little in um in the book that you've recently come out with uh it, which is 1054 and all that and we'll have you know links in the show notes to 
to, to this book. I've read it. I went through it and very quickly. But this idea of little by little, and what I mean by that is that you're a guy who's written extensively. You're incredibly learned. You are deeply studied in a variety of areas, you know, theology and apologetics, evangelization, history, all these different fields. And so there's so much that you can do on a given subject. And you have, you have done a lot on, even in, in books, but in 1054 and all that, the way I describe it is this, don't worry, kind of little by little piecing together of a 2000 year history of the Catholic church in a way that's incredibly readable. And you almost like, you're not worried about the fact that, yes, I could go down a rabbit trail on this particular sentence that has 7,000 more data points behind it. You just give the little step and you move on to the next thing. The way, the way that I thought about it, because I promised you I would think about a shorthand to it. To me, 1054 and all that reads like Encyclopedia Britannica meets Monty Python meets Twitter is kind of the way that <laughs> I would describe this book. But it is very much this super condensed and very casual is the wrong way to describe it. But it's, it's, um, it's so accessible. And in a way, I wonder if that was a challenge for a guy like you to make something so accessible because it's something an eighth grader could read, and frankly, younger than that, and go like, yeah, I get it, and laugh along the way. And it's something that a guy like me, not at your level, but certainly better than an eighth grader in terms of my Catholic understanding, can read at it, read it and go, oh, wow, that's really cool. I, I, I wonder if it, if it was a struggle to kind of do some of what you did in that book. Actually, no. You know, I've written 20 some books now and uh, I have a few more coming out by summer. Uh, sometimes writing the, a book is just a chore. You just have to sit down and hit the keyboard and close your mind to everything else and just go through it. It's not fun. Other times I've had you know, easier times composing a book. But on this time, in 1054 and all that, I had a ball writing it. Mm. It was easy to write. Um, I hope it's not improper to say, but as I went through, I laughed at my own jokes. Yeah. And, you know, I've I've read the text now in editing forms and in proofreading and all this. I probably read the whole thing through 10 times. And I still go back and chuckle at my own witticisms. So maybe that's imprudent to, to admit, but but I had a lot of fun writing this. And uh, it's only 140 pages long. And actually, a true introduction to the history of the Catholic Church would be 1,400 pages long. I'm sure. You know, a little, and, and of course, uh, a complete, reasonably complete look at Catholic history would be 14 volumes or 14 bookshelves long. Okay. So 1054 and all that is in no way intended to be comprehensive. But I've been deliberately non-comprehensive. I pick little episodes or individuals or heresies or whatever that interest me. And I write about them in short compass. Um, the shortest, I have 111 segments, I call them, not chapters, but 111 segments in the book. And the longest one is only 650 words, a page and a half. And the shortest one is about a third of that. Mm. Uh, so no person, place, event gets a lot of attention. Now, everything I write in the book is accurate about the thing. I do lace it pretty thickly with my own brand of humor, which I might characterize as um, 
quasi-British witticisms or kind of mordant wit at times. Yeah. Um, It's not a, you know, the title may not be clear to people. Maybe I should explain this. 1054 and all that. I, I am mirroring a book published in 1931 called 1066 and all that. And I'll, I'm going to copy here, see if I can show it. And this was a book published by two English men. And it was a spoof history of England. And what they said is they wanted to display what they imagined the average Englishman still remembered of what little history he was taught in school. Mm. And so it's, and it's all mixed up with a lot of um, confusions and puns and, and so forth. And that 1066 in the title, 1066 and all that, 1066 was the year of the Norman invasion of England. So a pivotal year in English history. And so I wanted, I, this was one of my inspirations in writing my book. And so I chose the title 1054 and all that for two reasons. One, it's in the same century. So 1066, 1054, but also the, the year 1054 was key in Catholic history. That's where the Eastern churches broke off from the West. So uh that other book was one of my inspirations in doing this book at all. Uh, the other was simply that I've always enjoyed Catholic history and think it's something that most Catholics don't know remotely enough about. And I wanted to write a book that would be very accessible. Uh, and, you know, sometimes, maybe often, a history book can be a slog to get through. Uh, so I wanted to present something that would be enticing, that'd be fun. Um, and so the subtitle is A Lighthearted History of the Catholic Church. Mm. And uh, as I said, I make no attempt at comprehensiveness. Uh, you know, the New Testament tells us that 15 men had the title of apostle. I mentioned only three, Peter, uh, Paul, and John. Uh, I guess that leaves me another 12 that I can mention if I have sequels to this book. And uh, otherwise, what I've done is I've tried to divvy up the segments roughly in equal number across the centuries. And the book is divided into four periods of 500 years. And I do that mainly because that's the way the history of the West, in terms of a secular history, normally is considered. You know, we've got the, the early centuries up to 500 and the fall of Rome, then that so-called Dark Ages for the next half millennium then the Middle Ages, and then starting with the Protestant Reformation, we have the modern era. Okay, So I use that structure, and within each of those four units, I try to put up about the same number of my segments, so that from the earliest part of the church, beginning with Pentecost, up to close to modern times, uh, there's the reader's able to get some sense of movement in Catholic history. Uh, in many, t- many places, I'll be referring to events that probably everybody's heard of but may not know much about. And But I also talk about some obscure things that maybe only a fraction of my readers would ever have heard about, but simply interest me. You know, maybe some weird heresy or some personality that doesn't normally come to mind. Mm. I think you're not giving yourself enough credit, though, about the point that I was trying to make initially, which is when there is... 14,000 volumes that could be written about this to only write the amount that you've written and make it readable is hard to do. I think that's, I see that as a challenge. 
Well, yes, it is. I mean, I, when I think of other things I've written or that other people have written and I've had to edit, compression is a difficult thing. Uh, it's easy simply to cut things out with a sword, but that's not the same as compression, uh, where you have to pick and choose more judiciously oh. what you include, what you exclude. Uh, and I had to do some of that here because I wanted to have a certain flow. So, uh, you know, I've got one section where I talk about St. Patrick and then St. Benedict. And Benedict is mentioned in passing in Patrick's part. Uh, so there's a kind of flow between the two. Or I'll re refer back at any number of times to an earlier person or heresy even. Uh, sort of, Sort of the glue that keeps things at least in general connection with one another. Uh, and now, I won't say that was difficult to do, because as, as I said earlier, I found this book easy to read. Yeah. I mean, well, it, right. it, it, I read, it, I hope. But, but I'm very positively to you, though, that, that, you, that you found it easy. Yeah. Well, I think because I was having such a good time putting it together. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I got to use some techniques I've not used before. I've had footnotes in other books as would be necessary. And footnotes normally, of course, are to a citation to some outside source. But in this book, I've got 58 footnotes, none of which is to a natural citation. It's almost a kind of um, comedic device. There are times when you want to have a bit of a pause before you get to the punchline. And so in a number of places here, I would say something. And then there'll be a footnote and you have to go down. And there's, for example, I mentioned uh, just after I talk about the Council of Trent, uh, Pope Pius V then comes into, into play and I talk about him. And he was the Pope who had to put the Council of Trent into effect. And I say he was mostly successful, but he wasn't always successful. For example, he at one point issued a document that tried to depose the British monarch, mm. the, the daughter of Henry VIII, that is Elizabeth. And then at the name Elizabeth, I have a footnote. The bottom of the page, it says, the first one, not the nice one. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so uh, and, and actually, I wrote that because I wrote it very soon after the passing of Elizabeth II. And so she was sort of halfway in my mind anyway. Um, and, I, and I thought, well, okay, people will... We'll get that. Okay. And uh, early in the book, uh, I talk about the first Catholic apologist, who was St. Justin Martyr. I mentioned that he was a pagan. He went through all these philosophies and, you know, eventually realized only Catholicism made any sense. But I begin by saying, not everybody nowadays understands the meaning of the term Catholic apologist. Mm. So here's the definition. A Catholic apologist is someone who goes around the country apologizing for being a Catholic. And then there's a footnote, and it said, this is a joke. If you didn't realize that at once, stop reading here. You won't understand the rest of this book. You're not going to enjoy the rest of the book. Yeah, that, it's, it's one of my favorite devices that you use in the book. And it, it reminds me also of uh, live theater. And, and frankly, other, you can do this in... Um, uh, in fiction as well, but there's a device, I believe it's called apostrophe, which is when the characters in the work reference the audience. 
And I, I love those moments where, you know, you, you might see it in, to give a contemporary, a relatively contemporary example, the, the sitcom The Office, right? Where there's a moment where somebody's having a conversation and something utterly ridiculous gets said. And one of the characters, and usually it follows that it's a character who is not, you know, because that show has nutty characters and regular people. That's how that's part of the the genius of that show from a television formatting standpoint. But you'll have one of the characters turn to the camera and look at it like, did you just hear that too? Yeah. And it's I, I love those moments because we're having two different conversations, right? Yes, right. I'm, I'm reading I'm reading the book, but now I'm also talking to you. And, and I love that, that part of, of the book. You didn't have to do that. And I, I, and I don't know that it would be, well, I think it's more successful because you did, but what I'm saying is you could have very easily just produced the book as is, and there would have been enough interesting about it to my mind to make it super readable and interesting. But that added layer of it, I think really is a very nice touch. Yeah. Well, I tried to add, add a few continuing threads in the book. Uh, one of them is, uh, tongue-in-cheek comments about politicians in general. I, I don't mention any names. Um, but, for example, when I write about St. Benedict, who's one of the patron saints of Europe and the founder of Western monasticism, I mentioned that his motto was Ora et Labora. Okay? So pray and work. And I said that, uh, that that appealed to men who would like to pray, but not all of the time, and who liked to work, but not all of the time. It never appealed to any man who liked neither to work or to pray. Such men instead became politicians. <laughs> so little things like that. So the, the, the jibe at politicians is something that gets brought up maybe four times in the book, at, at different side comments. You know, um, well, actually, probably more than that, because I often when I'm talking about some secular character of king or prince doing something. Sure. And I, 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 I more or less said, well, you know, what can you expect? He was a politician, mm. you know, and uh, whether it was Charlemagne or, you know, someone almost never heard of that kind of thing. So, uh, and I found that myself, including those almost automatically as I, as I composed the book, I did not sit down and outline what I wanted to do. Oh. I just sat down and began to say, okay, I've got to start with a little bit of an introduction. Um, something like the book 1066 and all that did. They've got a page or two in there sort of setting the, the stage because it's a, it was, for its time, quite an unusual book. And, and, you know, it's been in print now for 92 years. So it, they did something right. Um, but I, I needed to do something like that. So I had... Uh, couple of paragraphs explaining why the book in its basic format. And then I start straight away with, with Pentecost, the, you know, the birthday of the church. Mm. And uh, so I knew I had to begin there. But then after that, things just sort of flowed on the run. I said, okay, who or what should I talk about next? What was sort of on the timeline? So I would have a, a timeline of, of church history, you know, by my side. I'd say, oh, flip through it. Oh, okay. I need something, something else in the third century. How about this guy? And then I would write about him, that kind of thing. But it, it came very easily. And I didn't, unlike other books I've written, I didn't have to work out some kind of long outline beforehand to make sure that I was covering everything uh, and that 
that their various parts would be in balance with one another. Here, there's not, not a particular problem because everything is so short. You know, the average thing is less than half a page. The average incident or person talked about. So I just found it an easy go in terms of writing, mm. uh, which was refreshing for me because I've written a lot of things that are really everything else I've written is more serious. Um, but but there's been quite a few things I've written where uh, a lightheartedness simply wouldn't work or be appropriate uh, just by the nature of the, of the topic. But were, were there things that you um, wrestled with that you in, you, you thought, I, I want to include this, but decided not to include? Uh, only for the tail end of the book. Uh, you will recall that towards the end, I talk about um, things up through the Second World War. I talk about the rise of lay apologetics, starting with the Catholic Evidence Guild. I bounce back to the 1920s for that, come forward. But I don't say much really beyond that time period. Oh. In a couple earlier places, I reference Vatican II, but I don't have a segment on Vatican II. Yeah. I deliberately did that. And the way I end the book is by saying, uh, you know, we'll stop here. Uh, the, like, throughout the book, I reference to my, myself as author with capital A. I don't, use, I don't say I anywhere, just the author. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and I say... Uh, and basically, this is where I'm ending, because this is where the author enters the picture, the picture yeah, mid-century, basically. And uh, uh, we know that history is, is the story of the dead past. He's not dead yet. So there's, there's no history for him at this point. And that uh, it'll be up to his literary executors to bring the book up to the time of his passing. Uh, so that allowed me to not deal with reasonably current events and personalities mm. about whom it might be a little more awkward yeah, to say something lighthearted or humorous, you know? So, and I think that, I think that works. You know, I'm pleased with the way that worked out. And uh, I mean, somebody might want to say, oh, you know, I want to hear a joke about John the 23rd or something. Well, I don't, I didn't have anything to say about, I think the last Pope I mentioned is, is past the 12th. Mm. Um, but uh, because he was, you know, Pope when I was born. Okay. But, uh, so I, I don't come up to today or even to recent times, really recent times, um, that I would have lived through as an adult. Mm. Yeah. And I think that, I think it's probably a prudent way to, to, to round out the book. Yeah, it definitely works. Um, I want to go back a little bit to the, the the tone of the book, its humor. Now, obviously, 1066, as you've already rightly pointed out, was one of the most well-loved and, and best-selling, to your point about its durability, uh, British humor titles of, of all time. Mm -hmm. And your this book carries forward some of that. You said mordant. People might know it as kind of a dry sense of humor, very British sense of humor, which, by the way, I'm a huge fan of British comedy. And going back to the classics is that I would define, like when mm -hmm. when this all kind of kicked off um, with, you know, like a show like Till Death Do Us Part, which mm -hmm. was the basis for what we came to know in the States as All in the Family with Archie Bunker and all of his, uh, his issues. Um, but, you know, that, uh, that mordant uh, sense of humor are were, are you currently or 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 have you become a fan of that type of comedy? 
I wouldn't say that. I'd say this is just the kind of humor that I have. It's mm. not it's not as though that I've been watching or listening to or reading British humor as such and absorbing that. I think there's a parallel. If when I look at 1066 and all that, I think it might be fair to say that it's sort of verbal slapstick. Yeah. It's it's a little more goofy than my kind of humor. But also I, I think earlier in the show, I, I mentioned I used the term British to describe in a way my kind of humor in this book. Uh sort of a reserved humor. Yeah. Sort of an undertones. Uh humor by implication in many ways. There will be a few things in here that uh, some reader perhaps might say, is that actually how it was or is he being funny here? You know, uh, because it's it's not an obvious kind of result at the end of a joke, you know, build up and then there's a joke. It's not that. So a dry, a dry wit, I think, might be the closest I can come to describe. But that's my humor anyway. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not... I'm not in this book foisting on myself a kind of humor that I don't otherwise have. This oh. this is me, you know, for for good or ill. This is this is the kind of humor that I I express. Yeah, it's not about a punchline. It's like the inference, right? Um, and I can definitely see that in 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 you. It's a, it's a much more natural than if you were to say, I don't know, whatever. It's not uh, you know uh, a different form of comedy. It's definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let, let me reference what continues to be my favorite little episode in the book, mm. which is about the in the middle of the book. It's about St. Joan of Arc. And I titled the segment Joan of Arc, A-R-K, not A-R-C. Mm. So someone's going to think that's a misprint, but it's not. And on the opposite page, and I should, I should mention that the book is illustrated. And I, it's not by me. I had a professional illustrator, actually a professional caricaturist. Uh, maybe some folks who will remember the late Al Hirschfeld, who is famous for his caricatures of Hollywood personalities. Mm. Well, the guy that I contracted with named Kurt Kress uh, asked me, do you want me to have a kind of caricature approach to these black and white drawings? I said, yeah, you know, something that, but, and he said, I can, I do Hirschfeld style if you want. I said, that's just what I want. Mm. So, uh, Opposite the page about Joan of Arc, we see a full-page illustration of Joan on the left, standing, holding a banner in one hand, her other hand on the hilt of a sword. And she's got a tunic that she's wearing, and beneath the tunic are leggings or trousers. The next to her is Catherine Hepburn, and uh, she's wearing the trousers for which she became famous. And I explain in the book let me let me read this part, or at least part of it. Sure. And uh, I said, in 15th century France, a peasant girl named Joan claimed to receive visions of St. Michael the Archangel, St. Margaret, and St. Catherine. She asked for a meeting with the claimant to the French throne, the future Charles II, but repeatedly was rebuffed until she wasn't. They had a chat, and he was impressed. Joan was said to be a collateral descendant of Noah, and thus, thus was known as Joan of Arc, A-R-K. She became famous for leading a French army against the English and for wearing trousers. She was the first woman to do both simultaneously. Mm. The English took offense and burned her at the stake in 1431. Joan's fashion did not catch on until exactly five centuries later, when Catherine Hepburn caused a stir in 1930s Hollywood by wearing trousers. Hepburn, unlike Joan, 
never was canonized because she never led a French army. <laughs> and, not, and not burned at the stake either. Yeah. So I, I am in this kind of past, I'm assuming that the reader will instantly understand that, well, Joan was not actually canonized because she led a French army. Okay, so I'm having just a little fun with historical events. But what I mentioned is that her, 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 the vision she claimed to have of saints, her meeting with the future Charles II, uh, her leading a French army against the English, her wearing leggings or trousers, um, her being burnt at the stake in 1431. All that's accurate. Yeah. That's completely what happened. But the very fact of Joan's attire made me think, oh, Catherine Hepburn, I, I remember what little stir that she had made. So I put her into this. And uh, so, so that's the kind of yeah. humor that I'm able to get in the book, where I you know, end with the line saying, you know, Pepper wasn't canonized because she never led a French army. Well, obviously, that's a lighthearted comment, not to be taken quite literally, the, the way that most of the rest of the, the passage should be. But I, I am relying on my readers to be able to distinguish at some level between a, a sort of low-toned joke yeah. and, and actual historical incidents. Okay. Carl, who did you write the book for? Three audiences. First, myself. I simply wanted to write the book. Okay. When I, when I got the idea for it, I have not, I did not have the idea for a long time, but when I think what happened is I was simply going along my bookshelves. I've got a lot of bookshelves at home and I, I pulling out things I hadn't seen for a while. There was 1066 and all that. And I why don't I do something like this? Yeah. Okay. And that got the idea. So it hadn't been something in my mind for years and years, like some books have been. So I have to say, first for myself, I just wanted to do it. Uh, then second, for the Catholic who might be fairly well-versed in Catholic history, uh, but has only, of course, been able to read the not lighthearted stuff, which is what Catholic history normally is composed of. Uh, somebody, someone who might be very sophisticated uh, in his understanding of the faith and, and the breadth of his reading. Uh, but then the larger audience would be the Catholic who maybe has never read Catholic history, maybe got a little bit of it at school. I mean, just as 1066 and all that was written for the average Englishman whose lessons in history came years ago when he was in school. And, and probably it's gotten all messed up in his mind since. It's much the same, I think, for most Catholics. They've gotten some Catholic history, maybe if they went to parochial schools. Hmm. Maybe they got some Catholic history on their own somewhere along the line. Uh, so for that kind of person, that's my larger audience. Mm. Okay. Uh, I probably would have written the book if neither of the other, uh, neither of those two audiences would be around. I'd simply write it for myself because I had such a nice time doing that. Uh, but of course, no writer ever writes only for himself. Right. Uh, he, he's always hopes that someone else will, will read the words and, and profit from them. And I hope that the profit that people take from this is a sense of confidence in the church. Mm. Uh, you know, when I, 
composed my first book, Catholicism and Fundamentalism. That's 35 years ago now that it appeared. Uh, I had in mind two audiences. First, the Catholic, who wanted to find out how to defend the faith against charges from so-called Bible Catholics, Bible Christians, you know. And But second, I kept in mind that I wanted an audience of Protestants. And for their benefit, I had to limit myself in how I would compose an argument. So I, I, I never, in that book, relied on a papal decree or a conciliar document because a Protestant would not accept their authority. So I relied on three things, uh, scripture, early church history, and common sense. Mm. And over the years, I got to appreciate more and more the power, the evidentiary power, the proving power of church history. Early church history, yet, but all the way through. You know, John Henry Newman in the mid-1840s was composing his, what I think is his main book, his many books, and that's the essay on the development of Catholic doctrine. And he started that book as a Protestant. He ended it as a Catholic. Like, yeah. And, and what he did is he looked at the Catholic Church of his day and said, okay, here are the Catholic distinctives. Here's the Catholic Church as we see it. Do we see the same things a century earlier? Yes, we do. A century earlier than that. And he took it all the way back and said, yes. Okay. We obviously, the outward manifestations change over time, just as our outward bodily manifestations change, but we're the same persons. Okay. And so Newman did a kind of reverse history of Christianity. And he said, yeah, you know, in essence, uh, church history on its own proves the bona fides of the Catholic Church. And that's what I have found. And so I hope that it, that 1054 and all that will be the beginning for a lot of people to say, yes, I can see the Catholic Church and its teachings all the way back. Yep. And two things. I can use those when I'm discussing with maybe a non-Catholic or a less informed Catholic. But second, I can see this gives me a confidence because I don't have to wonder whether between 33 AD and 2023 AD, whether there was some giant gap or change that I'm unaware of, and that maybe I'm not really a Bible Christian. Maybe I'm belonging to a church that has a lot of additions that can't be traced back. Mm. But if you go through Catholic history, even in this lighthearted short way, I think you begin to get a sense you know, there's a continuity here. Yeah. So I think they'll treat, you know, according to the massive tree, there's there's one thing there, you know, from from the newly conceived child to old age, there's one person there. Uh, even though you might hold up an image of an, an early photo and a late photo and say, no, they don't look the same to me. Well, yeah, but everything is, as Newman taught, everything changes over time. The proof of something being alive is that it's growing, you know, and, and growth by necessity means there are alterations. It doesn't change its essence, but it does change in certain at least outward manifestations. So I hope that the book is one that will lead readers who aren't yet well-versed in Catholic history into reading more, because I think the more they learn, the more consoled they will be. Yeah. Yes, they're in the right church. This is this is exactly the same institution that popped up on Pentecost. You know, there's the the outward manifestation, of course, change. Uh, you know, we don't wear, nor even do our priests 
while they're doing their official duties, we don't wear what the first century Christians wore. Okay. But but in essence, it's the same thing. The, the priesthood of the first century is the same as the priesthood of the 21st century. Amen. I would I would have hoped that there would be a fourth audience too, Carl, which you know didn't make your list, but I think this book, because of how it's written, can actually be very um helpful in this regard. And that is for non-Catholics or people who are just unchurched in general. And boy, do we have a lot of them in this country in particular, because it's precisely a book like this that I can think about somebody saying, you know, the reason why I'm Christian, I came across this crazy book 20 years ago, and it was this funny little book and it was kind of comedic, but it, it opened up my eyes to what's sort of been in front of me all along. And, you know, otherwise I can imagine how, rare the chances would be for somebody in that category to grab a book like Newman's or Avery Dulles or any of these sort of, you know, great minds of, of, of the church and take that off a shelf and start reading. I don't see that likely in 2023 and beyond for the average, you know, person coming up in the country, but a book like this actually could be, it could be read. And in very little time, you could derive a lot of value from it. And, you know, I think it would be hugely beneficial uh, as a way to get people started on a thought process that, oh, there's something deeper here, historical here. Um, and because it's so accessible, because it's so, it's got a comedic, you know, nature, because it's brief as well. All of those things very much point itself to being the, uh, you know, a reasonable thing for people today to to pick up who are not necessarily religious or or Catholic. So that would be, you know, my hope if I could throw that fourth audience in. Well, yes, I appreciate that. And I hope that audience is there too. And because for those people, what I would like to do is leave them with a suspicion. There you go. A, a suspicion that there's more to the Catholic faith and church that they might have suspected. Uh, and I think that you can't blunderbuss such people into that kind of suspicion. Uh, I have known a few people who, in fact, pick up John Henry Newman, and in essence, that's their first Catholic introduction, and they go from there. But that's really rare. Yeah, okay. it is. And so we're looking, you know, one person versus millions in theory who would never go that way, but who might pick up something thin, accessible. I mean, my book can be read in one evening. Yeah, you know, it's it's it's, it's it. only it's only twenty five thousand words. It's not. A long book. Uh, but uh, I do think it would be one that could lay some germs, Absolutely. some seeds, you know, in, in somebody's mind and just have a suspicion that, okay, maybe there's more here to the Catholic claims than I thought. Expected. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe I didn't even know that the Catholic Church made claims, but now I discover them for the first time. Exactly. Yes. I'm, I'm glad you also brought up Catholicism and Fundamentalism, which is itself a seminal book. There's no question about it. Um, it's something I read years ago, 15 years ago, maybe, uh, when I was going through the first fervors of my reversion, maybe later than that, or earlier than that, rather. But it, it, huge work. And you, you, you described the audiences for that book, and you described the, the, the sort of mechanisms that you use so, you, you know, so that you could get that sense of authority to the audience that you were writing for. But that book was seminal specifically in the area of apologetics and the entire kind of movement that you kicked off, which you know you were sort of already beginning that work with Catholic Answers and all of that. But it kicked off a wave 
of apologetics. And we see all the sort of various permutations of it still to this day. But I'm curious, how has apologetics changed? Because one of the things that you described, and then I'll get out of the way because I want to hear your, your answer, is this frame of Catholic and fundamentalist, i.e. maybe Protestant understanding, both Christian, and there was tension between those two. So the book, in effect, was a way of dealing with that, that kind of framework, right? The, the, the lens is we've got people who are both people Christian, one Protestant, fundamentalist, one Catholic, and the book is sort of, you know, communicating between those two groups. Today, my contention is that the frame has either begun to shift or shifted entirely already, where the, the, the idea isn't we have to convince people that we're not worshiping Mary, although I'm sure that still continues to be uh, you know, thought in certain sectors, but it's the idea that, you know, God, that, there, that there's a need for a God, that God exists, that um, God is present in the world, that we need a relationship with this God. It just seems like the, the, the frame has shifted. And consequently, I think that apologetics needs to, in a way, shift based on that frame. But I'll leave it to you. How, in your mind, has apologetics evolved or the need for apologetics evolved since you wrote something like Catholicism and Fundamentalism? Well, the book was published in 1988, and I wrote it mainly in 1986 and 1987. And in, in that decade, every year in the U.S., 100,000 Catholics left to become Protestant fundamentalists. It was a one-way street at that point. The, nobody was going the other direction. And so that, that was a problem. And it was one I tried to address. And I think I had some success in doing that. Uh, there were other things that one could use one's apologetical skills for back in those days, because obviously that was not the only sure. thing going on in religiosity uh, with respect to the Catholics and non-Catholics. But that was something that uh, appealed to me, maybe because I have at, at root a kind of argumentative nature. Uh, in the good sense, I want to say of that, um, where I like to discuss things, have the back and forth, have the exchange, uh, come to a resolution, uh, whether it's religion or politics or art or what have you. Uh, but since that time, you know, it's, at some point later, maybe it was halfway between then and now, it became clear that the one-way street had become at first a two-way street. And then largely in the other direction. Yeah. Nowadays, one doesn't hear of many Catholics becoming fundamentalists. Some, but one hears of many people in Bible churches becoming Catholic. So uh, the, need, the need for my kind of book still is there. And Catholicism and fundamentalism still sells decently 35 years later. But uh, the, the, the tensions in religious society have altered. Mm. And nowadays, uh, and I don't want to say that back then the biggest problem was fundamentalism. No, that was just a segment that I focused on because nobody else was doing it at that time. There were other things an apologist could have written about. But nowadays, uh, I think the larger problem, which wasn't so evident then, although it existed then, of course, is, is was indifferentism. Yeah. Uh, nowadays. Affiliation, perhaps, too. Well, you know, even Frank Sheed, who was writing before my first book came out, 
he mentioned uh, about people saying, okay, yes, you can prove to me that God exists and, and his attributes and so on, and that he founded a church and all this. But so what? Yeah. Why should I care? Why should it matter to me? Mm. That is a much more intractable problem than fundamentalism. Yeah. The the fundamentalists, almost all that I dealt with over the decades, and I still occasionally do, are in their own sense logical people. They may have started with incorrect premises and, and therefore drawn wrong conclusions, yeah. but they want to work in a logical way. And they're open to rational thought, to discussions, to premises and conclusions, and so on. But those people who are indifferent. And they're a large proportion of our society. I don't know whether they're a majority, but perhaps so. But they're effectively indifferent to religion, even though they may be nominally religious. They may, in fact, go to church on Sunday. But you can still be that and be indifferent to the bigger questions of what does all this mean? And should it change my life? Uh, okay, so Christ is really God, not just a man. And okay, he set up a church. And if, if such and so methodologies, okay, but why should that change me? Why, why should it matter to me? And, I, and you, even a Catholic, and there are Catholics who do this, say, in essence, say that, yeah, I'm a Catholic, but, but why should that make a difference? You know, uh, that kind of attitude is much more difficult to deal with than dealing with maybe a hot headed antagonist who at least believes in scripture's sure. reliability and the fact that uh, 90% of what we have as, as religious doctrines, we agree on and understand the same way. So I would say, yes, today, the focus on apologetics, if you're just looking numerically, would need to be at a different audience. Mm. Okay. Now, again, there's still people with the fundamentalist concerns that I dealt with in that book. There are people who, um, for example, there are quite a few people who are still, as back in that time, who are sort of sucked into atheism or its arguments. And in the recent years, especially the last 10, 15 years, a number of Catholic apologists have written books about atheism. And yet that's not the main focus nowadays. Most people are not going to deny that God exists. Uh, they accept that he exists. But they don't care. Mm-hmm. In essence, they won't say that because it sounds unsocial. But in fact, they don't care. Mm. How do you get them to care? You can't really care about something that's not important to you. And something isn't important to you unless you understand it. Sure. And so you've got multiple layers you have to go through to get to where you can be making an impress on the indifferent person that we find all around us today. How much of a how much of a reason for the indifference is distraction? And by that, I mean that your example of the fundamentalist, you know, reasonable people, we disagree, but there's, they're almost like a principled opposition. They have a perspective. They make positive claims. I just, dis- I, I talk to them and I say, well, here's actually what history or X says about, or scripture says about it. And then they either come to that point of view or they don't, but they're, they're starting from a standpoint of having, you know, sort of a principled uh, point of view. Indifferentism to me seems insurmountable insofar as it may be true, but who cares? 
But then I got to ask, where does it come from? What's driving this sort of growing, what I would say is a growing sense of indifferentism? And could it be, among other things, the fact that we've never been so captured, our attention been captured in so many different ways by so many different devices and applications and other things. And we're, we've turned our attention almost exclusively on ourselves. It, is that part of what might be behind some of this indifferentism? And if not, what do you think is? I think that is part. I mean, we talked earlier about what draws me to hike in the wilderness. And that's getting away from the illuminated screens that are in front of our faces most of the day. And I mentioned the episode of a couple of girls hiking, bringing a boombox along. They, they could not hike in silence. They had to have sound with them, mm. whether or not they were listening. And so many people, especially the younger people, have to have a screen in front of their faces. We see this in restaurants all the time. People don't talk to one another over the table. They're all sitting around. They're looking at their screens. And, uh, you know, that's common. So when that happens, when let's say you're just looking at your screen all day long, uh, your phone is always in front of your face, mm. you block yourself out from the wider world. You, you may not be conscious of that. Some people may do it deliberately, but I think most people are not conscious of it. And so you don't have an appreciation then of what's around you, who's around you, what's going on, what does it mean? You know, what does that imply? And so if you can black out the world around you that you can see and touch and feel and taste and hear, mm. it's even easier to block out God. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got, there was a kind of liberty in times before, long before our grandparents' era when there was no TV, there were no smartphones, there was no phone, there was no radio. You actually, had time, you are forced, you're forced to look internally in a different way than, pe than people now do. They look now at themselves yeah. very superficially. But there was a time when you were almost forced by circumstances into a kind of contemplation, even if you were not a religious person, but there's a kind of contemplation that sort of came to you. And I see this often when I'm on trail, especially younger people are almost over impressed at how they're able to, what they call meditate oh. when they're out of doors. It's not true meditation, but I understand what they're saying. Uh, there's a, they've dissociated themselves from that illuminated screen that has become their life. And they're able to look out across maybe miles of landscape and, and see that, you know, it's beautiful. And I'm not, I don't know, I'm not an important part of that. Yeah. It's out there. Yeah. It's immensely more than I am. Where when you've got the phone in front of your face all day, it's reflecting you most of the time. You know, and that's you you've constricted what you are if that's what, how you are living your life now. Yeah. So so I think yes, a lot of technology and so on we have not yet and I don't know if we ever can get to the point of weighing it and using it properly. Yeah, and I, I don't mean, you know, underhanded things or illegal things. No, I mean, where 
we accept the good things it can do for us like we accept the good things fire can do for us, but we don't let fire get out of hand and we realize it has to have its own place. Uh, and so with technology, we need to do something like that. We need to have time away from it so that we can look toward outwardly and inwardly toward the more important things. How to get there, I'm not sure. Yeah. But but I, but I, I think I'm fairly sure in sensing that this is a major problem. Uh, and it might be the one that in a social sense will be determinative for the next who knows how long. You've just heard part one of this conversation between Deacon Charlie and Carl Keating. Be sure to come back next week for the second half of the discussion where the two talk about wokeism, the problem of intellectual propaganda on college campuses today and how to develop an intellectual hunger throughout our lives. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.